Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus said that to his disciples in Gethsemane on the way to the cross. As believers, our spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak. Sin's enticement is strong, and obeying God under the pressure of temptation is really hard. It sometimes feels impossible. Oscar Wilde is best known for his play, The Importance of Being Earnest, and his novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray. Uh, In a scene from The Picture of Dorian Gray, the hedonist Lord Henry tells young and handsome Dorian as he poses for a painting, the only way to get rid of temptation is to yield to it. The only way to get rid of temptation is to yield to it. And as Christians, we say, no, no, we must fight temptation and overcome it. And that's right. However, if we're honest, sometimes when it comes to certain temptations, uh, we feel like the only option is to yield to it because we've yielded so many times. Why is it so hard to put our cell phone down? Why do we repeatedly waste so much time on social media and entertainment and then feel stressed about our busy schedules? Why are those websites so desirable for us? Why do we know we shouldn't say it, but then we go ahead and say it? Why are we thankful for something one moment and in the next moment we're grumbling about it? Why do we decide to eat healthier and then take a second dessert? Why do we mess up our room, wish it was clean, then begrudge our parents for making us clean it up? Why are we so critical of others when we haven't really sought to understand their perspective? Why is it that we praise God in one breath and curse in another? Saints, how is it that we know the right thing to do, but when tempted, we yield so easily and often? Brothers and sisters, some vices, to be honest, they just don't tempt you and me all that much because by God's grace, you just don't find them desirable. You overcome them quite easily. But there are others. You know them. Temptations which constantly harass you, harass you. Their magnetism is strong. Are you watching and praying because you know that your spirit is willing but that your flesh is weak? Prayer is birthed out of great need. So here's what I'm asking God to do in your life. I'm asking God to give you hope and strength in your moments of greatest temptation. I'm asking that the Holy Spirit use Matthew 4, 1 through 11 to encourage and to better equip you to overcome temptation. As God's beloved children who face temptation every single day, we need to constantly remember that Jesus is our help in our greatest temptations. Jesus is our help in our greatest temptations. Jesus was tempted, just like you and me, yet he was without sin. Therefore, as a victorious covenant keeper, he is able to help you and me in our greatest temptations. Matthew 4, 1 through 11 
shows us how vital scripture was for Jesus in the fight against temptation. That's a very helpful truth from this passage. However, a lot more than that is going on here. Simply quoting scripture does not rescue you from temptation, nor does it guarantee that you're going to obey God. I don't even think quoting scripture is the most important point of this passage. See, as Jesus quoted scripture while being tempted, he was also filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit and his heart was fully resolved, fully committed to obeying his Father in absolutely everything. He was fulfilling the scripture that he was quoting. The scripture kept him focused. It fortified him in his messianic identity and role, but he had to keep the covenant of works which Adam failed to do in order to be our righteousness and help us as prophet, priest, and king. Jesus needed to overcome temptation or else the cross would be completely powerless. So to really understand the temptation of Jesus, guess where we need to go? Right back into the Old Testament. We need the backstory of Adam, Israel, Moses, the Exodus, the wilderness, and the law. Adam. Adam was the God-ordained representative of all humanity. God put him in a lush garden. God established a law to protect and to preserve. And when Adam met temptation, he yielded. In a lush garden where he could have anything that he wanted to eat, Adam ate the one thing that God told him he shouldn't eat. He broke the covenant of works and he has subjected humanity to sin, to guilt, and to death. Adam failed. But God gave Adam the gospel of a seed, a son who would rise to conquer Satan. Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15 teach that Adam was a type of Christ and that Jesus is the second and the greater Adam. Matthew 4.1 says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. God didn't tempt Jesus, but Satan's temptation of Jesus was God-ordained. It was planned. It was purposeful. When Jesus was tempted, he was not in a lush garden where all of his needs were met, but rather in a barren wilderness. In fact, verse 2 says that he was fasting 40 days and 40 nights, so he was obviously really hungry. Jesus is human. He gets hungry. And I think Jesus was fasting in order to better focus on the Lord in his messianic work. See, intimacy with God sustained Jesus in his work. Now, are you at your best when you're hungry? Probably not. I don't know anyone that's at their best when they're just ravenously hungry. And when Jesus met temptation, unlike Adam, he overcame. I've taught that national theocratic Israel was typological of Jesus Christ, meaning Israel foreshadowed Jesus Christ, who is the true and greater Israel. There's a lot of Bible behind that interpretation of Scripture, but Hosea 11, verse 1, and Matthew 2, verse 15 confirm that truth. Hosea 11, verse 1 says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Then Matthew takes Hosea 11, verse 1, and he applies it to Jesus in Matthew 2, verse 15. Jesus is the true and greater Israel. Now see the parallel here. Israel suffered slavery in Egypt. 
God called them out of Egypt, delivered them, led them into the wilderness, established a covenant with them in the wilderness, and gave them the law at Sinai. God tested them. How did Israel do in the test? They failed. Some never entered the land, some did, but eventually God exiled Israel from the land because they broke his covenant. Now that should sound familiar except for one massive difference. God called his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, out of Egypt, delivered him from Herod, anointed him with the Holy Spirit for his messianic work, and led him into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. How did Jesus do in the test? He kept the covenant. He obeyed God's law. He is the rightful heir of all the earth. Jesus was sent to fulfill God's covenant. And unlike Israel, he overcame temptation and he did it. Dr. Leon Morris commented, each temptation was defeated by citing a passage of scripture that had reference to the temptations that confronted Israel in the wilderness. Again, we have the thought that Jesus fulfilled Israel's vocation. Where Israel failed in the wilderness, Jesus succeeded in the wilderness. Isn't that good? Jesus is the true and greater Israel. And I think that was part of the reason why he quoted Deuteronomy three times. That's purposeful. Well, what about Moses? Well, Moses was the mediator of the old covenant, and Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. So there is an inseparable connection, a link between Moses and Jesus. Listen to this fascinating text. I don't know that this resonated with me before, but in preparing for this, this is amazing. Exodus 34, verses 27 and 28. So the scene is Moses was on Mount Sinai in God's presence. God renewed the covenant with Israel and wrote the law on the stone tablets that uh, Moses brought. And it went like this. And the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he, so he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Isn't that fascinating? Moses, the mediator of Israel, fasted 40 days and 40 nights when he received the law in typological fulfillment. Jesus Christ, the greater mediator of all of God's people, Jew and Gentile, fasted 40 days and 40 nights as he obeyed the law-keeping covenant on behalf of God's people. Amazing. Now, this backstory helps you understand what Jesus was doing in Matthew 4. There is a lot going on in this uh, passage, and there's a lot more going on than simply quoting Scripture to overcome temptation, as vital as that is. The New Testament connects Jesus to the Old Testament types and shadows of Adam, Israel, Moses, the Exodus, the wilderness, and the law in order to do something for you in order to serve you in this way, to show you that Jesus really is God's promised Savior and that he really can help you in your moments of temptation. A quick connection back to last week. Jesus was baptized, ordained, anointed, and empowered to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus' baptism at the end of Matthew 3 sets up 
sets us up uh, very nicely for Matthew 4, where Jesus works to fulfill all righteousness with his active obedience to God's covenant and law. Matthew 3 establishes his identity and role uh, of Jesus as the Christ, and then Matthew 4 begins to unfold his actual messianic work and his perfect righteousness. Of course, Jesus obeyed and fulfilled God's law throughout his life, but Matthew takes us right from his baptism to his temptation in the wilderness to begin to show us how Jesus fulfilled all righteousness and is therein uniquely qualified to help us as we struggle against our temptations. So let's turn to Jesus' three temptations where he refuses to yield, forget Oscar Wilde, and he instead continues to fulfill God's covenant of works for us. Temptation number one and Deuteronomy 8.3. Verse three says, and the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Similar to the garden, Satan once again undermines the authority of God's word, what God said. In other words, after God confirmed that Jesus was his beloved son, Satan was saying, okay, beloved son of God, your father has neglected you. You're hungry. You need to take care of yourself now. So if you really are God's son, well, then prove it. Turn these stones into bread and satisfy your hunger. Now, certainly the temptation was linked to hunger, no doubt. But it's more than that. Jesus had the power to do that miracle and to eat. But you see, that would have served fleshly purposes and not the purposes of God. Satan's temptation was essentially, God hasn't provided for you. Provide for yourself. Do it because you can. But see, it was the wrong way at the wrong time. Wrong way at the wrong time. A miracle at that moment would dishonor God and reveal unbelief in God's provision and timing. But Jesus had a heart of gold, unfazed. He answered, it is written. And right there is his confidence in the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God, the Old Testament. And he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Deuteronomy 8.3. Now, why go there? In Deuteronomy 8, Moses addressed Israel and reminded them of God's covenant with them. That's what's going on in the context. And then Moses said this, verses 1 through 5. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. Why Deuteronomy 8? Because he is the true and greater Israel who needed to keep the covenant. 
He is the one who in the test proved faithful by carefully obeying all of God's commands. He is the one with the pure heart. He is the one uh, who truly lives, not by bread alone, but by the will of God. Jesus needed to succeed, and he did, because his heart fully communed with his God. Jesus succeeded because he knew that bread didn't sustain him, God sustained him. When his stomach was empty of food, his heart was full of God. Dr. Hendrickson rightly interpreted Jesus as meaning, tempter, you are proceeding upon the false assumption that for a man, in order to appease hunger and keep alive, bread is absolutely necessary. Over against this erroneous idea, I now declare that not bread, but the creative energizing and sustaining power of my Father is the only indispensable source of my and of man's life and well-being. Jesus would eat again, but not by Satan's means. Now, we often make mistakes of pursuing good things, good things, by wrong means and timing. The end does not justify the means. God is greatly concerned with the means. Now, back in 2001, a hip-hop group, I'm sure many of you are into hip-hop. I might be one of the few. Uh, You probably don't like hip-hop. But hip-hop, this group named City High, sang a Grammy-nominated song titled, What Would You Do? The song captured the tension of a single mom not knowing how to care for her hungry child son. And in the song, the mom, who had a very difficult life, prostitutes herself to feed her son. And the chorus goes like this. What would you do if your son was at home crying all alone on the bedroom floor because he's hungry? And the only way to feed him is to sleep with a man for a little bit of money. Now, we, we feel the tension in that. It's good to want to feed your son, but to pursue that good good goal, that good desire through immoral employment is to distrust God's provision, His ways. Maybe the church would have stepped in and helped. I think this song helps us understand Jesus' first temptation. The end doesn't justify the means because if the means are immoral, that equates to unbelief. Will God not provide through His means at His time? Well, Jesus needed strength for His ministry. He needed food. But He shows us where the strength ultimately comes from. Not bread. Not bread. Bread is not what is needed most. But doing God's will and work. Jesus wanted most what He needed most. Not bread, but God and God's sustaining word. Jesus found satisfaction, not primarily in the sustenance of food, but in the sustenance of doing his Father's will. Jesus said in John 4, 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And there you have it. Now, Jesus knows temptation better than you and better than me. He knows it. And he overcame it. How? Because God was the strength of his heart. Brothers and sisters, 
Is he not able to help you in those worst of temptations for you? The ones you're so discouraged, is he not able to help you? Temptation number two in Deuteronomy 6, 16. Verses five and six. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest your foot strike your foot against a stone. Now notice what Satan does. Oh, he's sharp. Jesus overcame the first temptation by trusting in his father's provision and quoting scripture to remain focused. Okay. So for the second temptation, assuming God's provision, Satan quotes Psalm 91 which is about God's provision. But Satan twists its meaning and he uses it to tempt Jesus to presumption. In other words, okay, so your father will provide for you. True, so jump off the temple. God will protect you. Your precious scripture says God will command angels to save you. Someone said, presumption is not a mark of great faith, but evidence of no faith at all. Psalm 91 is a beautiful song about God's gracious provision meant to strengthen his people, to build them up. Psalm 91 doesn't advocate presumption or doing stupid and irresponsible things that test God and then expecting God to come through. God does not promise to grant irresponsible and reckless requests. Psalm 19, verse 13 says, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Dr. Hendrickson explains the dangers of presumption. This is what he wrote. This is very, very helpful. A person will earnestly beseech the Lord to bestow upon him the blessings of health. However, he neglects to observe the rules of health. Or he will ask God to save his soul, however he neglects to use the means of grace, such as the study of scripture, church attendance, the sacraments, living a life for the benefit of others to the glory of God. Again, someone will plead with the Lord for the spiritual as well as physical welfare of his children, but he himself neglects to bring them up in the way of the Lord. A church member, admonished because at a circus he had eagerly rushed into a corrupt sideshow, defended himself by saying, I cannot deny that I went there. But while I was there, I was constantly praying, turn away mine eyes from beholding vanity. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test is the answer to all of this. End of quote. My friends, presumption is unbelief. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6.16 in response. And here's what that says. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Now, how did Israel test God at Massa? Exodus 17, 1-7 gives account. Israel was wandering the wilderness and there was a water shortage. And they were thirsty, angry, and quite grumbly. And Moses said, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? And they, they were honestly ready to kill Moses. They were jacked up. And they doubted God. But see, God graciously provided water from a rock. Nonetheless, Moses named that place Massa, which means testing. 
because the people tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? And that's like saying, because we don't have any water, God must not be with us. That's unbelief. That is absolutely unbelief. God was with them and God was providing for them. Calvin explained it like this. As we have already seen, unbelief was the fountain and cause of the tempting in Massa. For when the people neither relied on God's providence nor rested on his paternal love, they burst forth into impatience and at length advanced so far as to think that God was not with them unless he complied with their wicked lusts. Israel needed water. We need water. They needed water, but they needed to trust God for water, not test God. Jesus stood on the pinnacle of the temple. It was possibly on the roof edge of Herod's royal portico, some 450 feet down. That, that's, that's scary from the ground, and he had absolutely no reason to jump. To jump would, have, would not have proved anything because God had just confirmed from his word what needed to be confirmed. A jump would have been presumption. An unnecessary test of God. Satan wants to take precious truths of Scripture, which strengthen us as believers, to obedience to God, and he wants to twist them, just slightly, just twist them just a little bit in order to lead believers into disobedience, to lead them away from God. Lots of so-called Christian authors and speakers and TV preachers and bloggers do exactly this. They misinterpret Scripture, they use it as presumption, and they end up leading many people away from God. The health, wealth, and prosperity gospel thrives on presumption, thrives. It's a huge temptation for us to interpret Scripture according to our own selfish desires. We want to make it say what we want it to say. That's a temptation. Jesus would have nothing to do with that. Not going to do it. Jesus knew what Psalm 91 meant, and he knew what Deuteronomy 6.16 meant. He wasn't about to foolishly and presumptuously test God because Jesus, Jesus was already entirely uh, confident in God's faithfulness. He just didn't need to do that because he was confident in who God was, in his faithfulness. Now, I think it's kind of funny that Satan quoted from Psalm 91. He quoted verses 11 and 12, and the next verse says this, I kid you not, the serpent you will trample underfoot. <laughs> That's amazing. How ironic. Why did he leave that serpent part out? By overcoming temptation, Jesus was keeping God's covenant and applying pressure to the head of the serpent. That's awesome. That is awesome. Temptation number three in Deuteronomy 6.13, verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Was this a vision? Was he actually seeing everything? We, we don't really know what was going on here exactly, but the view was amazing. And Satan said in verse 9, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Liar. Liar. 
Now, yes, Jesus in John 12, 31 did refer to Satan as what? The ruler of this world. But that is in light of God's universal sovereignty revealed in plenty of scriptures. Whatever Satan does, he does on the leash of God's absolute sovereignty. Book of Job. Satan may greatly influence the kingdoms of the world, yet Romans 13 makes it clear that God puts all rulers, even wicked rulers, into power to serve him and his sovereign purposes. Even Jesus' conversation with Pilate reveals that Pilate had no power outside of the power that God had given him. Satan lied. The kingdoms were not his to give. Now, as the Messiah and as the promised Davidic king, hugely significant of what we studied leading up to this, and he would reign and rule upon God's throne forever, Jesus Christ would not assume power the wrong way at the wrong time. Satan was offering Jesus power without suffering the cross. But the glorification of God's Son would not come through an unlawful seizure of power, but through a cross. Jesus, get your power now. Avoid the cross. Avoid suffering. Avoid God's wrath. It it doesn't have to be that painful for you. Take what is yours now and, and just bow. Just worship me. And you will get what is yours without humiliation and without the cross. Oh, how cunning and wicked the path of ease and comfort can be. It is the road of grateful and joyful suffering for God's purposes which leads to life. Do you realize what was at stake at this moment? Do you realize the point and application is much bigger than memorize scripture so you have something in your pocket for your moment of temptation? Do that. Of course do that. Be equipped. Be ready. That's part of this. But Jesus could not crush the head of Satan if he was bowing at Satan's feet. Jesus stood. He refused to bow. His heart was already submitted to his Father's will in suffering unto exaltation. And he maintained that posture so that his foot would be upon Satan's head to crush it entirely through righteousness, through a cross, and through a miraculous resurrection. Remember, suffering the cross was much more than physical pain. It was soul pain. It was anguish. This temptation offered a way to avoid God's righteous wrath poured out as the penalty for covenant breaking, but still receive power. Saints, I don't need to tell you, sin is appealing It's tempting. We think I want that because it looks so good. And yet Jesus had no desire for it because he was entirely resolved to do his Father's will. His spirit-filled heart for his Father led him away from everything that would displease his Father. Everything. Well, Jesus had enough. He said, be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. What was he doing but that? Jesus again quoted Deuteronomy 6, a a fascinating passage to quote 
And we could unpack so much from that text, but it recounts God's grace and faithfulness to Israel and calls Israel to never forget God's grace, but to fear and serve God alone. In fact, Deuteronomy 6 calls Israel to do what? What's earlier in the chapter? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Israel didn't do that. Jesus did. While Jesus paraphrased Deuteronomy 6.13, he was at the same time fulfilling everything in Deuteronomy. He wasn't done fulfilling it, but he was, he was doing it. He was fearing God alone. He was serving God alone. He was loving God with all of his heart and with all of his soul and with all of his strength. He was keeping the covenant. He's our great covenant keeper. That means something. That, that, that is deep theology that comforts and empowers and strengthens in the journey and as we face temptation. And he did it. He, he fulfilled the covenant. He obeyed the law. He, he with, withstood temptation. Why? To be our righteousness. But not only that, to be your practical help, to meet you right where you're at, to help you through temptation. Jesus remained standing in solidarity with God. He chose the road of suffering so that one day he would tell his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Me. In other words, I have been faithful. Therefore, I have supremacy in all things. Saints, saints, dear saints, beloved children of God, is he not able to help you when you meet tremendous temptation? Is he not able to help you? Pulling it all together, how Jesus overcoming temptation helps us overcome our greatest temptations. Verse 11 says, then the devil left him and behold, and there's that great word again, behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Jesus obeys God taking the road of suffering, and how does God provide for him? He sends angels at the right time to minister to his faithful son. God provided for Jesus before, during, and after temptation. Instant gratification, my friends, is often horribly bad for us. And delayed gratification so often brings us the unfathomable blessings of God. So let me pull it all together and apply it like this. His temptations and subsequent victories show us that Jesus is our faithful high priest. Now, why am I going to the high priest thing? Prophet, priest, and king, why high priest? How is that? Listen carefully to Hebrews 2, 17 and 18. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able, he is able, he is able to help those who are being tempted. There's your confidence, brothers and sisters. As our high priest, Jesus suffered immense temptation not only to make propitiation for our sins by his sinless sacrifice of himself, 
So he needed to be sinless in order to go to the cross to be our sinless sacrifice, or we have no sacrifice. That's part of it. But also to help you in your time of need. He also did it for that. This is practical theology. (laughs) This is as practical as it gets. Matthew 4, 1 through 11, shows you that your faithful high priest, Jesus, will help you overcome in your biggest struggles. He's ready to help you, so turn to him for help. Turn to him for help. Consider Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Saints, right there is your hope. Right there is your hope. Jesus, your faithful high priest, knows what you're going through. He knows your weaknesses. Remember, he too was tempted. But when he was tempted... He never yielded. And because he didn't, he invites you to his glorious throne of grace to receive from him mercy and grace, the mercy and grace that you desperately need in your times of greatest temptation. His sympathy is for you. His grace is for you. His mercy is for you. His endless supply is for you. Go to him, O weary and needy saints, and receive From him, what you need to overcome temptation. Don't presume. Believe. Believe. Meditate on his word. Pray. Think on him. That's that's something that I, I think Tim Nichols encouraged me with recently, and it struck me. Think on him. Why am I not thinking on him? Get your mind where it needs to be, Jonathan. From the temptation onto Christ. Think on him, and then expect his supernatural grace, his supernatural power, his supernatural deliverance to work in you and to work for you. From your heart, plead with God with all sincerity, from the bottom of your heart, to give you grace, to give you the Holy Spirit in your times of temptation, and then you have to act, you have to obey. And then be very, very sure to thank him for giving you grace, and the Holy Spirit, gratitude. Go to him. Go to him. You know, think about this. The same resources that help Jesus overcome temptation are all yours in Christ. You have it. You have him. Go to him and receive from him. Is he not able to help you in your greatest temptations, dear saints? Is he not able? So let's not overthink it. Because our spirit is willing and because our flesh is weak, Jesus said, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Watch for temptation. Pray to avoid temptation. Trust Christ to help you overcome temptation. Commune with God deeply through the word and through prayer. And when temptation comes, dear ones, you have what you need in Christ to overcome. Praise God for the gospel.